Welcome to Aligned Expressions, the new podcast series by Sherry Burton Stein. In this series, we'll be talking everything from home, lifestyle, yoga, and feng shui. And I am your host, Sherry Stein, and it is a pleasure to have you connecting, growing, and learning with me through Aligned Expressions. Welcome to another episode of Aligned Expressions. And I took a little break between December 2022 and the spring of 2023. And now I'm back and ready to start a new season of the podcast. And today, I am proud to introduce my newest guest. Her name is Dr. Chris Marsh, and she is the Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Maryland. Previously, Professor Marsh was a postdoctoral scholar at the Carolina Population Center at the University of North Carolina, a visiting researcher at the University of Southern California, and Fulbright Scholar in South Africa at the University of Johannesburg. Professor Marsh's area of expertise are the Black middle class, demography, racial segregation, and education. She will be discussing her newest book, The Love Jones Cohort, Single and Living Alone in the Black Middle Class. Specifically, Dr. Marsh and I discussed the health and well-being of those who are single and living alone in the Black middle class, particularly women, as that is a strong interest of mine and of hers as well. I am so looking forward to hearing what you think about this particular episode as I talk to my new friend, Dr. Marsh. In addition, I just want to remind you, this podcast is a labor of love. So please, please, please review and provide your testimonials, your thoughts on this podcast, rate it so that we can continue putting together great content. In addition, if you'd like to donate to the production costs around this podcast, feel free to do so on my podcast website. Last but not least, this podcast is brought to you by Banyan Botanicals. But the Banyan Botanicals is my new go-to for healthy supplements and other supplies to support my Ayurvedic lifestyle. I will be placing a link in the show notes if you'd like to learn more. 
and place an order for some great products from them. So without further ado, let's get into this episode. So today, my friends, thank you as we have brought on Dr. Krish Marsh on our program today. So Dr. Marsh, how are you? I am fantastic, Sherry, and I'm so happy to be with you and your listeners today. Well, I'm so excited to have you on the program today, and I am really feeling this book, and I really would like the listeners to know first a little bit about who you are and Mm -hmm. what you do and, and how this book came to be. So let's hear it. Okay. And you know, it's, and I always love talking about how the book came to be. And people often assume that it's a book about me, the sociology of me. And I do fit in the category, but I have been doing this work for, I think, almost over 10 years now. And so the first part, I'm a sociologist and a demographer. So one of the things that was really interesting to me as a sociologist, and I say this wherever I go, I said that I didn't want to be the academic, the type of academic that pimped the poor to make my academic career. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people that don't look like me who really talk about Black people who are in poverty and talk about all the ills of this population. But for me, I wanted to look at understand all of Black America. To understand all of Black America, you have to study the Black middle class. And so I was not going to make my career talking about the Black poor because that's if we're not careful, it comes off in a very exploitive kind of way. And so it's I wanted overdone. to. It's been overdone. Oh, right, right. You know, we, it's, it's overdone, but I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, 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 that's great. No, it's so true. Mm-hmm. So I said, you know, even though the Black middle class are a smaller segment of the Black population, they're there. And if we want to understand all of Black America, we got to understand the other extreme as well. And I really wanted to focus on everybody who, quote unquote, had done everything right. They went to college, they got degrees, they got big salaries, they got big houses, they got big estate planning, but for whatever reason, they didn't get married. So on the quantitative level, I had been talking about this research, this demographic group for years, but then at some point I wanted to put metaphorical meat on the numeric bones that I had developed and built over the years. So I decided to talk to people and understand about their single and living alone lifestyle in the black middle class. One of the things that has frustrated me over the years is that people have asked me and people have asked other people in the Love Jones cohort, which is the name of the book. And we can talk about where the name came from. Ask people, why are they single? Mm. And I say to the readers, I hope once you finish reading this book, people are just as likely to ask somebody, why are you single? As we ask somebody, why are you married? We often ask single folks, but we don't ask married folks and wait for the married people to give articulate answers as to why they are actually married. And so I wanted to move away from that conversation and I wanted to destigmatize singlehood and in the hopes that people would not get into oppressive, unfulfilling and toxic relationships simply because they don't want to hold the stigmatized title of singlehood. This book is helping to destigmatize singlehood and have people stand confidently comfortably and emphatically in their singleness. And I also wanted to make real sure that I talked about their lifestyle. What are singles doing? Right. I don't want to spend most of the time to talk about why aren't they married, why they don't have children. Why, no, no. I want to move beyond because that becomes a very deficit type of yeah. model. I want to talk about what are they doing? Where are they living? How are they living? How are they coping? So that's what the book is really trying to do. 
Well, it's interesting that you state that you are a demographer, a sociologist, and as an undergrad, I studied business marketing and I took mm-hmm. a demography, a demography class, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. and I absolutely loved it. You know, I'm really nerded out by studies and research and, and trying to understand various cohorts. And I took it just to help understand audiences for marketing. Right. So when you said that, I'm like, oh, I'm just going back to my college uh, <laughs> class. That's how much I just enjoyed that class. That was like my absolutely favorite. And social studies was my favorite as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> and, that's fantastic. Uh, yeah, I just absolutely love. Now, you're also a professor at the University of Maryland College Park. Is that right? Yes, I am. I've been there since 08. I was tenured in 2014, which kind of means I have job security. Mm-hmm. And so now I really just, I'm like, I'm enjoying my time as a professor now because I really get to do the research that I want to do. And the research that I think is impactful and the research that means something to me. So before I was trying to get tenure, so there are certain kind of research um, projects that I picked up and did that helped me get tenure. But now that I'm tenured, I'm doing exactly what I want to do. Awesome. So you're going to tell us a little bit about how you came up with the title of your book. <laughs> you know, I, it's so interesting. I didn't think the title was going to be such a conversation piece, but it has turned out to be. Mm-hmm. It's really funny, Sherry, because I was on a call a couple of weeks ago. And so author meets critic. An author wrote a book and then there was critics who reviewed the book. And so one of the things that the author said, she was an economist, economist at Harvard. And one of the things she said, she was talking about women and careers and how they've changed over time. And so she looked at different groups of women with different age cohorts. So her publisher said, oh, your audience isn't going to know what the term cohort means. So just call them groups instead. And so I was like, oh, my goodness. I put cohort in the title of my book, not even embedded in the book. But I'm excited that I did because it was really important for me to understand that 33% of the U.S. population hold a bachelor's degree. So there's a select few people that hold bachelor's degree. And with maybe used terms like cohort, I'm not sure. But I want people who may not have access to formal education to be able to use some of these terms so it's in the title. So cohort is a traditional demographic term that means nothing more than a band of people. Mm -hmm. But the Love Jones part, I'm drawing from pop culture and media. So when we think about like the quintessential heteronormative middle-class family We often default to the Huxtables on the Cosby show, middle class or beyond. We default to the Huxtables on the Cosby Mm -hmm. show. Yeah. But then we started to see a demographic shift in the type of characters on the big screen and the small screen. And the pioneer where we really start to see this demographic shift is in the movie Love Jones. Mm. So, And these are young Black professionals who, for the most part, aren't married, don't have any children. So the book is called Love Jones Cohort, drawing by traditional demographic training and also linking this up with like media and pop culture. So that's how we come up with the term Love Jones Cohort. And it's funny because some people who know the movie Love Jones are like, oh, this has to be interesting. I have an idea. Other people are like, this is an intriguing title. I don't care what it is. Go buy the book and let's talk about it. So the book, actually, the title itself is interesting. And people buy the book simply because of the title. And then inside the book, I think that there's some really quite powerful things that people haven't really thought about before. And I lay it out in a very clear and concise way for people to think about certain things they had not thought about before, about singlehood. So let me ask you this. What was the most surprising research or result of your research based on this book? What was it that kind of blew your mind 
after you wrote it? I mean, is there any one thing that you were surprised? I don't know if I could point to just one thing, but I will say, because I think everything is just fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it's uh-huh. a great. It's an awesome book, but I was, <laughs> and there was so much different. The, your yes. research was so rich and so interesting right, right. and it just left me with a lot of that's why I can't wait until we see each other in person for your in-person review of this right I was saying to myself I wonder what was it that she even found so there's one thing that I don't know if it's a there was an aha moment I think one yeah. of the things that I grappled with a lot And I even believe in the book, I kind of said, hey, to the reader, it's kind of up to you how you think about this, because I don't even know how to make meaning of this, because it was so all across the board. And it was about who's more stigmatized in their being single. Mm -hmm. Men? Is it women? And we're using those binaries. Is it younger folks or older folks? So Mm. some people said, and it kind of, I just, it was all over the board. So there was no true trend or path to hang out on. So people said like for younger folks, they're more stigmatized because their pool is bigger. So if you're not partnered, clearly something's wrong with you. If you're older, people have died off and stuff. Your pool is smaller. So you're more stigmatized. People said men were more stigmatized because if they're over the age of 50, never been married, don't have any children and people automatically assume they're gay. If women are more stigmatized because we're thought of as being angry black witches, and we're thought of as being like hard, difficult, and clearly there must be some kind of personality deficit. So the one thing that I was consistent about, and I think I said to the reader, I'm like, there's really no consistency. The one consistency is that everybody says there's a stigma with being single. So that's the one that's consistent. So everybody agrees to that, right? Right, right. So I just- That's what I got out of it as well. Yeah, I just really grappled with that because everybody was pointing fingers at everybody else. There was no one like who was most stigmatized, which is kind of good because, you know, it didn't become the oppression Olympics. Like everybody's trying to be the most stigmatized. It's like just across the board. It's stigma. There's a stigma with singlehood. Yeah. That was really interesting to me. So for me and my audience, I really zoomed in on the section or chapter 10.2, which is dealing with well-being and mental health of this cohort. And in this chapter, you write, quote, 55% of women interviewed for the book state that their SALA status, which is single and living alone. Okay. Sala. Okay. Status as having a negative influence on their well-being. So that's a high amount, 55%. Can you discuss this a little more and why this may be so? Because you have a lot of information in that chapter that that kind of point to, well, maybe this. But then you go on and discuss some other things. But I wanted to ask you that first before we get into the next section of it. Yeah, so that's really great. And I in chapter 10, I co-authored that chapter with a graduate student of mine who's now a, a professor at UCLA in the School of Public Health. And so she has a better handle on some of the public health literature. So I wanted to make sure that I did my due diligence in the public health literature. So one of the things that I want to be fair and balanced about is that I do talk about the lifestyle of those that are single and living alone, the Black middle class or in the cohort. And for the most part, things were good. There were some women and men, for that matter, that talked about loneliness. But when they talked about loneliness, they didn't talk about a chronic type of loneliness Mm -hmm. that's debilitating. They talked about more of like a situational loneliness is actually what I called it. Yeah. So what that means is that, so let's think, we just had the holiday of Valentine's Day. 
or you have the holiday of like New Year's Eve. So those are two holidays that being partnered means something. And it, in yeah. some ways, people think that it matters. So you have people that had like their solid status would influence their well-being in the sense that they might have some type of situational loneliness, mm. but not just chronic loneliness. And the women often in the cohort talked about how their non-romantic nurturing relationships with other women really helped them through those situational lonely times that they had. And men, unfortunately, didn't necessarily say the same thing. And men talked more about not having those nurturing relationships with other men because they're thought of as being gay or soft if they have those nurturing relationships. Mm -hmm. So I do hope that we normalize having nurturing relationship, non-romantic nurturing relationships with other adults, whether or not we're men or women, if we use those for binary purposes. But yeah, so it was more like a situational, it wasn't a chronic but you sometimes your lonely your solid status will it will have some bearing on your well-being. It can have some bearing on your well-being. Mm. Yeah, I've seen that consistently in other research around folks that are not partnered, that there mm-hmm. might be a little bit of a feeling of a negative influence mm-hmm. on their overall well-being. And like you said, you know, major holidays such as Valentine's Day, which I am partnered and it's I don't make a big deal out of Valentine's Day. I've never have. (laughs) Right. But some people take that very seriously. Mm -hmm. So, And then you also go on to discuss that 27% of the cohort experienced some level of depression and 30% anxiety and 14% some level of both depression and anxiety, with most of the individuals in the latter category being women. So as I'm looking at these numbers, it appears that they're rather low for this population. And, you know, I was expecting because they're African-American and the pressure, so to speak, of uh, the racialized, um, you know, oppression and all of these things, no matter what economic status or marital you are, that that would be higher. And I was just curious to know your thoughts. Is it, is it because of the, I mean, you, you do talk about strong family influences and so forth. Um, what is it like if we took the, a cohort, and I'm not asking you to redo a, a research project, but if you took a, a, a cohort of lower income folks in the same category, I'm wondering what their numbers would have looked like. I thought they were very low. They were not necessarily significant in my opinion, but I wanted to know what what your opinion was about that. Right. So I don't know if we looked at um, people who weren't middle class and looked at their uh, scores. I would say that for the Love Jones cohort in particular, because they had such strong friendship ties and friendship networks, Mm -hmm. that probably is a buffer on some of the stuff that they're experiencing in their workplace, being Black in America. Because they are single, they do have these really strong ties. I think those strong ties really help them navigate a bevy of things, including their singleness, but also being Black in white corporate America. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. and. Uh, yeah, so I was really um, surprised at that, that maybe because of their status and the education, um, and maybe they might be in sororities, uh, fraternities, mm-hmm. and other mm-hmm. social groups, then mm-hmm. this is probably, you know, more. 
And then also, I did not see the word trauma at all um, in that chapter, uh, which was good, you know, uh, from the standpoint of none of these folks feel traumatized at all about, you know, the what it took to get to where they are or, you know, other oppressive things. And, you know, as a trauma-sensitive, trauma-informed yoga teacher, and I, I love working with individuals to help them through anxiety, stress, and all of those things. Um, and there are other professionals working with these groups as well. Um, I was, I guess, pleasantly surprised not to see that you know (laughs) and I you know and I was like saying to myself oh that's interesting um think about about that you know that piece of it right so so I don't think I ever I don't think we ever use the word trauma I don't think it shows up in the book it's not in the book I'm just okay so it's not in the book you know, right. <laughs> so, 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 right. So, and that's, and that is interesting. I do believe that, you know, I have to be sensitive to what the respondents mm-hmm. said and right. trauma wasn't a reoccurring theme that showed up in the data. That's not to suggest that maybe in some of the individual conversations, there may have been trauma, but it didn't, wasn't a reoccurring theme that happened consistently across the cohort. So the, I try to really highlight the reoccurring themes. There may be a few, but they did not show up in the book, nor did it show up as a reoccurring theme. But what I do think is important is that even if the cohort didn't say that, I would say it, I would argue that any Black person in America has experienced trauma. Oh, yes. God, yes. Sometimes it's it's a given. I'm Black in America. Understand there's some trauma somewhere. Exactly. And we we deal with it every day. You know, the moment we walk out of our homes, we are dealing with something coming at us, uh, even when we're driving. So, <laughs> right. so um, and that was, that was interesting. So my next question along that line, you know, that uh, some of the cohorts <laughs> talked about exercise and, and other things that they were doing, but um, did, did any, I didn't see in there um, specifics around um, wellness kinds of activities, uh, like going to the spa or, taking yoga or, you know, I heard, I saw exercise. Um, mm-hmm. There was one person that talked about that. Um, did, was that something that, um, do you have a sense of what a person in that cohort normally does to contain um, their wellness and, and, and mental stability? So, and you know, the book has been, I have an editor, so I, I don't know if we're, I don't know if this part made it into the book, but I do know that there were a couple of people we talked about, um, excuse me, where they wanted to live. Mm-hmm. And a few people actually talked about how they wanted to live, like uh, one person in particular I know talked about it. A few people did, I think, talked about wanting to live close to their yoga studio. So that was important in their decision-making process on where they wanted to live. And I think that might be like in chapter seven. Mm -hmm. So there were people that talked a lot about how they exercise and exercise could have included yoga, could have included running. Yeah. 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 And I also think besides just like 
those kind of wellness activities, the cohort also talked about like, you know, I have a lot of freedom to decide what I want to do. Like, for example, I'm having popcorn and wine for dinner. So I think in some ways that now I'm not necessarily put that in the wellness category, but I think, you know, having the autonomy to say I don't what they want to do. About right. That. And they also talk about how when they are, when they leave their house, their house comes back when they come back, it's just the way in which they left it. So I think all of that falls into a broader understanding of wellness, if I would use the word, the term. Um, but I do know that they talked about exercise. And I didn't parse out what type of exercise, but exercise was one of the essential things that they talked about to cope with being single. And in fact, some people said, you know, being single, they have to keep their bodies kind of more in shape because yeah. they're still on the market. Uh, yeah, I did. Yeah. Uh, I did read <laughs> and then it's really good to my I was like, oh, I'm going to stop working out. Yeah, right. yeah. So some people yeah. did spend more time in the gym and doing social wellness kind of activities because they are single. Right, right. So that that was really interesting. Now, touching on what you just mentioned about, you know, their living. Yes. And, and, and lifestyle from that perspective. Um, did the cohort talk or did you have any random conversations around yeah, obviously they have a lot of good purchasing power, good credit, right. all those great things. What What do you think regarding their homes? Is Is it really important to them to have a really well designed, decorated home? Is that something that you have found that they spend a lot of money on, or is it just just other things like real estate or you know more investment types of Things. So they talked, and that's a great question. So they talked about their homes and they talked about, you know, their homes kind of being their refuge and their, their place of peace. They didn't talk about the feng shui or the interior design of the home per se, mm-hmm. but it was clear that their home space meant a lot to them. And so because of that, I'm going to make an assumption that they wanted to make sure it felt the way a certain kind of way they were willing to buy the certain kind of things they needed to buy, because that's really where they would come home. And that's where they can be exactly who they can be and be very free and not have to worry about anybody else. I think one respondent talked about how she lived in every single room in her house. And I was like, I love it. And I'm getting ready to do the same thing, too. (laughs) (laughs) I love that, too. So, yeah, um, I think based on what I read that. I, that could be inferred that, you know, the the refuge feeling is an assumption that there is an importance to aesthetics that match the feeling that they are seeking. So it is it's it, it's such an interesting book. I mean, I could go on and on and on and ask all kinds of questions, but those were the things that I felt uh, that I was personally interested in, as well <laughs> as um, my uh, my listener. So, is there a way that my listener can get in touch with you? Could maybe, you know, where can they get the book? What can you tell us? Yes. So you can go to my website to order the book. My website is dr. Chris Marsh. That's d r k r i s m a r s h. Dot com. You can follow me on all of the social media platforms. My handle is Dr. Chris Marsh as well. D-R-K-R-I-S-M-A-R-S-H. And if you wanted to email me personally, you can email me at my University of Maryland email address. And that is kmarsh, the number one, at umd for the University of Maryland.edu. 
Awesome. Well, this has been a pleasure. And listener, um, I did not mention how we met. <laughs> we go, I, I love going to this coffee shop called PJ's, which is based out of uh, New Orleans. And there's a, a, a wonderful couple near where we live that uh, run uh, the local coffee shop. And I used to go in there uh, more often than I am now because I've been much more busy. But um, I love working in there uh, early in the mornings. And I met Miss uh, Arshadine. Dr. Chris, um, you know, regularly. And she just has this bubbly personality and it would set me in a mood and I would walk away and like, how do you stay like that? Is there ever a bad day? But she would always pull me up from wherever I am. And she's just such a positive spirit and it's been very supportive of the work I'm doing. And therefore it is my joy in turn to support her in this lovely book and I will put it in my bookshop as well I do have a bookshop account and I will share that and I will put the link in the show notes so thank you so much my dear friend uh, Dr. Chris Marsh Thank you, Sherry. It is truly a pleasure to be on this show with you. And, you know, so I generally just think that I, I am a, I'm an upbeat person, but I also tell anybody that will listen that I do see my therapist every Monday at 10 a.m. And I make sure that I work out because I think work out, working out is the best antidepressant that is on the market. And that's very important to me. And I do, I swim, I do yoga, I run, I get the different kind of exercises in, but it really does balance me out and it really does make a difference. Well, thank you for sharing that. Yes. And blessings on to you. Thank you.